Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given to us the promise of your spirit. You've promised that where two or three are gathered together, there you will be. And uh, we know that, that that is through the personhood of your spirit. And so we just want to pray today that as we open your word, as we study the Bible, that you would send your spirit to be here, that it would not just fill this house of worship, but it would fill each of our hearts, and that we might hear his voice speaking to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin with a little bit of a Bible study, so I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles, and if you take out your holy iPhones, make sure you're looking at the text and not texting, right? Um, Just kidding, I don't think there is such a thing as a holy iPhone, but a holy Bible is on the iPhone, and uh, what other device you may have with you at the time. And we're going to begin by looking at a number of passages today that, um, that share with us the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you. We're going to be looking at how um, important the Holy Spirit is in its role, in its work, in our spiritual conversion, and in our spiritual life. So we're going to start by looking at the the fact that the Holy Spirit gives power to the believers. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. I know this is a familiar text to many of us. In fact, I suppose we'll cover a number of familiar texts, but uh, we always learn more from the text, don't we? There's never a time when we have exhausted the Word of God. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, these are the words of Jesus as He's about to leave His disciples, as He's returning to the Father. And um, you know, and we looked last night at some of the promises, we'll look at some of them again today, the promises of the Holy Spirit in His absence. But Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, last night we were discovering how we, we tend to focus on the power and witnessing. We tend to focus on the, the Lord adding to the church as a result of the Holy Spirit. But there was a whole set of circumstances and uh, we might say conditions, experiences. The Holy Spirit brought the church through to the point that they could be powerful witnesses. It's not so much that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to go out and say things more eloquently. That's not the real reason the Holy Spirit gives power. It's not because the Holy Spirit you know, somehow um, you know, amplifies our voices or something like that. No, what, what amplifies is, is, what, is what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. Amen. That enables people to see that the religion of Jesus Christ is a life-changing, transformative religion. If if your religion does nothing more for you than what you can get from the self-help aisle of a bookstore, it's not the religion of Jesus. Because the religion of Jesus is a life-transforming religion. It is miraculous. Thank you for those amens. (laughs) The religion of Jesus, friends, is miraculous. And, and what the Holy Spirit wants to do as it fills each of our lives through an early rain measure, He wants to so change our lives that the words we speak are not just ideology. They're not just a phrase of nice construction. They are a reflection of an experience that we personally have had, that we have tasted and seen with Jesus. And so our words have power. 
Our witness has power. We looked at Acts chapter 2 yesterday about how the, uh, the Holy Spirit made the, the group united, the early church. They, they spent time focusing on God's Word. They spent time fellowshipping and eating together and, and enjoying each other's company and focusing on, on repenting of their sins and making right wrongs. And then the verse says, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. But sometimes we want to jump to the witnessing. We want to jump to the adding to the church without experiencing what the Holy Spirit brought in, early rain, uh, in its early rain manifestation to the early church. So the Holy Spirit gives power. And I want to just underscore that this power is not just ability to do evangelistic outreach or deeds. It is not power to uh, simply hold better evangelistic series and have bigger baptisms. It is power to change our lives that gives our words credibility and influence. The Holy Spirit gives us power for victory over conscious sin. It, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, uh, If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If we live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, we won't become high-minded. It says in Galatians chapter 5, 25 and 26, and I quote, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. If the Holy Spirit is in our lives, then the fruits of the Spirit will be seen in our lives. And the way it's said in Desire of Ages, I believe it's page 676, she goes on and she says, not one will be missing. The fruit of the Spirit is not fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And when you have the Spirit, you have the fruit. You don't pick and choose. It's not a salad bar, a smorgasbord. It's not a buffet. You can choose whether you want patience or love or gentleness or kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is what the Holy Spirit does in the human heart in which it dwells. So the Holy Spirit gives us power. I don't know about you, but I, I would say that having that fruit of the Spirit consistently is a miracle for me. I need that miracle. That means I need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit for the power that it can give, for the transforming power that it can give to us. The second thing the Holy Spirit does, let's turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we're going to look at a number of, of verses here today uh, from John chapter 16. Let's, let's look here in John chapter 16 at verse 8. John chapter 16 and verse 8. And this is what Jesus says. Um, and by the way, um, we'll, we'll back up just a few verses and look at, at uh, some context here. He has said that he is leaving and, and so forth. Um, verse 7, Nevertheless, I, say, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now just keep this in mind for a moment because uh, later we're going to be talking about the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I can understand where some of the people have anti-Trinitarian ideas, even in Adventism here today. I understand where some of that comes from, okay? But I don't understand how you can have Jesus going away, but it's his presence that stays behind. You understand what I'm saying? He's very clear here saying, I am going away. And it makes no sense to say that the Spirit is going to be his Spirit or his presence that just remains behind. That is just not a very rational reading of the language that he is using. 
If I do not go away, the helper will not come to me. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this conviction is very, very important. It's not because the Holy Spirit is the only one that convicts. I'll have you know this morning, it's important to note, that the Holy Spirit is not alone in convicting of sin. The devil also convicts of sin. Did you realize that? The devil convicts us of sin. There's a distinct difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin and the devil's conviction of sin, however. When the devil convicts you of sin, he says, you're such a bad sinner, there's no hope for you, you might as well give up. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, he tells you, you're such a sinner, but Jesus died for sinners just like you. There's a huge difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the enemy of our souls. And without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to come to Christ. We would not know our own need and we would not know the hope that we have in our Savior. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Now we could spend a whole lot of time just on this aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. There's sometimes confusion between the, the conscience and, the, and conviction, the Holy Spirit's conviction. There's actually a difference between the two. Did you know that? We won't go into a whole lot. I can't spend much time on that because I have a clock that's counting here. Um, But in summary, you can study it on your own. A, A conscience is only as good as its education. Your conscience can be seared with a hot iron. That's a biblical term. Your, your conscience is also, we're told, to be washed by the blood of Jesus. And so your conscience is not the same thing as the Holy Spirit's conviction. Don't confuse those two. Some people, have, some people begin to think that their conscience is some sort of an innate, infallible guide to right and wrong. And so I've heard people say to me things like this. Well, I can see what you're saying as we have this Bible study in the Word of God. I can see what the Bible says, but listen to these words. But I'm not convicted about it. As if the lack of conviction excuses a lack of obedience. The conscience must be informed by the word of God, not the other way around. And I often ask people, when I hear this kind of thinking, and I recognize it, I ask them, why would you expect Jesus Christ, through His Holy Spirit, to perform a miracle of some sort of a feeling or conviction, whatever you define that as, a feeling or impression or emotion, why would you expect, expect him to do something miraculous to give you that when you're not willing to obey what the Bible says in black and white? The Word of God must be our guide, so much so that Ellen White says that even the impressions of the Holy Spirit are to be tested by the Word of God. Now, I want to say something here. I do believe there's a, there's a point for following our conscience, no doubt about that. But we ought to be seeking to bathe our consciences in the Word of God. Our consciences, and, and if you'll do a study in the spirit of prophecy of, of, um, of, of how she treats this subject, he's very clear about uh, not all consciences are harmonized alike, not all are educated alike, and we need to be educating our consciences to be trustworthy. And it's only as we spend time in God's Word. Now, what do you, now some people will say at this point, what about those impressions that I receive? Do we sometimes receive impressions? Absolutely. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit can speak through us through impressions. 
Not every impression we receive is, is the Holy Spirit, you understand. But the Holy Spirit is able to speak to us through impressions. And there are decisions that I've made in my life that have been la- uh, largely guided by impressions which I have received, which I believe was the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you a little bit from my, ex- from my understanding, maybe from my experience, how I balance these two, an understanding of the conscience, but yet how to deal with impressions, and you might call them convictions, that you find yourself in. First of all, when you are seeking to make a decision, if you're a young person, you've probably been down this pathway. If you're an older person, I guess you've been down that pathway too, but not as recently as some of the life-changing decisions, career and spouse and all of these things that we, we grapple with as young people. But, but we, we, we want to know God's will. And praise God, there are young people and older people and people, right, who want to know God's will for their lives. Is that a good thing? Yes, but sometimes we want to know God's will about things that he may not have explicitly told us in the word of God, right? What career should I choose? Who should I marry? Should I have six kids or eight kids, right? I mean, there's some questions that aren't just really answered in God's word. And so there's, they're just those things that we have to struggle with and we want to know God's will. And so we pray about it and we ask for it. A couple of things that I have learned. Number one, I have learned that I have learned that I need to pray less that God will show me his will and more that I will be willing to follow his will when he shows me. Amen. Because my personal experience has been that I'm too often like Balaam. I've already been told what God's will is. I know what it is, but we'll stay here and let me pray a little more and ask what God's will is for me because I don't like what God has said to me what he has showed me or revealed to me. So I need to pray more for my own heart than for God's ability because God is able, amen? Amen. God is able to show us his will for our lives. Number two, when I am seeking to make a decision, he expects me to use the faculties and the resources that I have at my disposal. That includes my own intellect and ability to choose. There's nothing wrong, I'm not diminishing prayer, but there's nothing wrong with making a good old list of the pros and cons of different scenarios right? And, 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 and seeking to choose when this isn't something we're talking about that's explicitly defined in God's word. We're not talking about a moral issue, a right versus a wrong. We're talking about things that, that we just want to know what is the best will of God. We use what we have at our disposal. And all along, I'm praying about it, right? I'm praying that God will show me his will. He'll, he'll reveal to me the right thing to do, the decision that I should make. But ultimately, Ultimately, I think there are times when we ought to just make the best decision that we think is the right decision. And then pray that if God sees that's not the right decision, he'll close doors or he'll indicate it to us. And often I have found that as I've made a decision, I have had a sense of unease, a lack of peace about that decision. Or a peace, a sense of ease about it. And this is what I've learned. And I'm just sharing from my, from my experience. Uh, you can take it for what it's worth. Um, my experience is that if I consistently, particularly when I am in Bible study and prayer, if I consistently, I'm not talking about just a day when I feel blue or down, but if consistently in Bible study and prayer, I don't feel at peace about a decision I've made, I'm going to reverse that decision. <laughs> I need to have the peace of God in my heart. This is how I have sought to balance the fact that my conscience is not the direct line from heaven that God's word is, right? 
but I want to follow the convictions that God gives to me. I want to know his voice speaking to me. And I think we can most clearly, most reliably hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us when we are seeking him in his word, when we are spending time in prayer. And it's not safe for us to do something that in those circumstances our conscience condemns. We must be at peace with the decisions we've made. And so that's just, that's just a little bit of how I have tried to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting the heart. Conviction takes very many different forms. Some people, when they're convicted, they will begin, they'll just be emotional and happy and crying. Some people will be sad and crying. Some people will be angry at the person who brought the message. Other people will start avoiding the messenger. There's, there's, there's so many different manifestations of conviction, but the Holy Spirit is working to get to your heart today. And if we don't feel the Holy Spirit convicting us, if we don't hear Him speaking to us, then it's a good time for us to go to a quiet place and with God's Word and in prayer, ask Him to search our hearts and to remove any barriers that might be between us and Him. And allow that spirit to speak to us. We don't have time to continue on this subject. We could spend hours on conviction. The Holy Spirit guides into truth. John chapter 16 and verse 13. And by the way, this is a precious promise. An important work the Holy Spirit does. Verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Again, um, very clearly he's not being treated here by Jesus as an impersonal influence or some sort of a power or presence, but as a person with volition. And he, he's promised to guide us into truth. The, uh, the, the promise in John chapter 16 reminds me of Matthew chapter 10, verses 18 through 20. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak, for it is not you that speaks, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. The Holy Spirit can guide us into all truth, is also promised to bring truth to our remembrance at just the time that it is needed. Are these precious promises? They are precious promises of God's Word. The work of the Holy Spirit in our heart is a very, very important work. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Turn with me there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Of course, we believe in Jesus as the one mediator between God and man. In the heavenly sanctuary, He is our high priest. But we notice the Holy Spirit has an intercessor role as well. When he, we read what Paul writes in chapter 8 and verse 26 of Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. Let me break that down in simple English for you. We humans, we don't even know what to pray for. We have prayer lists and we have prayer meetings and we have prayer groups and we have lots of prayer activity and God designs it that way. We ought to be praying, friends. But in our best praying, we're poor prayers. In our best praying, we might not even be praying for the things that are most important. Because in our human blindness, 
without the ability to see spiritual and divine and eternal realities the way God sees them, we are missing the whole point. And the Holy Spirit is promised to intercede for us. As we are praying, He is presenting what we really need in our behalf. Do you want that? Is the Holy Spirit important for you, friend? Is it important for me? I would say it certainly is. The Holy Spirit gives us power. It convicts our hearts. It guides us into truth. It makes intercession. And fifth, it gives gifts. Let's look in there in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12 and verse 4. And we're going, 1 Corinthians, boy, I'm just, I'm just getting my tang all tangled up. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 4 and onward. This um, passage talks about the spiritual gifts. Again, a whole other subject that we could spend a lot of time on. But this is the summary, verse 4 through 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given wis uh, through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another works of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, this is important because we need the spiritual gifts for the body of Christ to be complete and to function, right? We've got some doctors here. We've got some medical students here. We've got others who are in the medical field. And uh, uh, it, it, you know that if the body became just a whole conglomeration of tongues, it wouldn't be able to function, function right? Um, it wouldn't, if we were all heads, it wouldn't work very well either. We need the entire corpus, right? We need the entire body for us to be able to be functional and useful and effective. And the body of Christ is made up of different people. You know, I, I find that this is one of, the, one of the things that really helps for churches to understand. As a pastor, I've come into, into situations where one church member has a real burden and it doesn't match what another church member's burden has another church member's burden is. And so uh, there, there can be at times some conflict and there's a temptation for someone to think, well, they should see things the way I see things. I'm not talking here about disagreeing on doctrine or great fundamentals or anything like that. I'm talking about the direction the church should be headed and what we should be doing as ministry and, and how we should be using our resources and, and how we should be using our time and these types of things. And we have to recognize that God gives different people different gifts and with them burdens for the ministry that those gifts empower them to be able to accomplish. And some people come to me and they say, we should be doing this. We really should be doing this. And I say, yes, we should. Go do it. If that's what you're convicted about, the Holy Spirit has laid something on you, He's going to gift you to accomplish it. 
Let's not be worrying about other people that don't have our conviction. Let's empower them to do what they are feeling is important in the ministry of the church. And when we are all working together using the gifts that God has given us, we will be able to do so much more than if we were just a drawer full of tongues, all lockstep with the same idea and the same uh, uh, priorities. No, God has given us all different gifts, and the gifts are very, very important. I'm afraid sometimes, you've probably heard the question asked, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, what would change? And I'm afraid sometimes that we have confused some of the, our, our own personal talents, maybe, with spiritual gifts. Um, Spiritual gifts are going to have a spiritual application. Amen. And they're going to come with a burden to accomplish something for souls, to save souls for eternity. Let's empower people to use their spiritual Let's recognize their spiritual gifts, yes, but let's, let's empower people to do different than what we are impressed to do. And we can work together and accomplish much more together than we can separately. You see, God is giving us a tremendous gift when He promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit? Corporately as a church, but individually as a person. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. Last night we looked at a number of passages which described how the disciples were earnestly asking God to pour out the Holy Spirit that He had promised as they were in the upper room, as they were making their wrongs right, as they were confessing their faults to one another, as they were breaking bread from house to house and, and worshiping God and praising God in the temple daily, as religion, their, their personal relationship with Jesus had become the great consuming business of their lives, they begged for the Holy Spirit. And I think we ought to have that kind of a, a passion the Holy Spirit as well today. We need it. We need it corporately, but we need it individually. We need the power of the early rain. It's never left. It's never been retracted. That We are living in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit today. And every ounce of power and energy that the early Christian church had on the day of Pentecost is available still for us today. Amen. And I fear that unless we experience the early rain, we will never experience the latter rain. So we, we ought to be praying earnestly, asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit because of these things the Holy Spirit can do for us. And this isn't an exhaustive list. It's just five things that I chose to share the Holy Spirit does. I want to turn now to the person of the Holy Spirit, however. I want us to see that the Holy Spirit is not just a force. The Holy Spirit is... Um, not a, uh, the Spirit of Jesus or of the Father. Um, some, some today are asserting anti-Trinitarian movement has sort of reared its head again in some quarters of the Adventist church. And some are asserting that different truths or lies about the personhood of Jesus or the eternal nature of Jesus. Some are also uh, are claiming that the Holy Spirit is not a person. And if you haven't heard of this, um, I'm, praise the Lord, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to spread the rumors. 
Um, I'm just saying that every 20 years or so, it seems like this idea comes up again in the Adventist church. And right now it's rearing its head again. And I just want to, want to look at some information that might help you if you do come across some who are anti-Trinitarian in Adventism today. And, uh, and even is the, in, the, in the Christian world, you may be uh, running across some people who have different ideas about the Godhead. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, we just read, so we'll start there. The one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Some modern translations translate that in the obvious, as He chooses. That's what the word wills means. In other words, the Holy Spirit decides which gifts you and I receive. Is that clear? That's not what I said. That's what the verse says. It says it very clearly. The Holy Spirit decides which gifts I receive. I want to just say, this is the clearest verse in my mind. The most difficult verse to get around if you want to say the Holy Spirit is just the presence of Jesus or that the sort of like the, the, the atmosphere around Jesus, the, the non-personal um, influence around Jesus. We all, have what, we all have one of those, right? We all have a spirit around us, a presence around us, an influence about us. But that spirit or that influence or that presence is not volitional. It cannot make choices on its own. It cannot make determinations one way or another. It is part and parcel of our personhood, not a separate person. And when you try to make the Holy Spirit just the spirit of Jesus, some sort of extension of him, you remove this Holy Spirit's personhood. This verse makes no sense. The Holy Spirit distributes to each one, each member, individually the spiritual gifts as he wills or as he chooses. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Once again, the spirit around a person does not have distinct and separate emotions from the person. They cannot. The Holy Spirit is talked about here as having the capacity of being grieved. That means... He has the capacities that a person has. He's not a separate, ent a, a separate entity of, uh, or a, an extension of the entity of Jesus himself. Now, I realize that there are impersonal symbols that are sometimes used to depict the Holy Spirit, such as water or wind or fire. This is poor evidence compared to these clear statements from the Word of God. Peter says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now, you know, you could, you could maybe extrapolate that, that uh, Peter here is trying to say that, that he was really lying to Jesus, but it was the Holy Ghost was Jesus' representative or extension. But that, it's hard to imagine why a writer would do that. The writers of the New Testament used Jesus and the Father, God and the, uh, the Father and God the Son, very frequently in their writing. They could have just as easily, if that's what he was trying to mean, he could have just as easily said, why did you lie to Jesus, right? But he says, why did you lie to the Holy Ghost to keep back part of the price of the land? Acts chapter 15 and verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, 
to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Once again, the Holy Ghost is spoken of in a very personal way, that um, it, 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 as a, a, a cognitive way. The, this, this matter of the, the circumcision and the, the, this is the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, um, the Holy Spirit has led the church to a conclusion and, 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 and uh, this the statement here is it seemed good to the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is thinking about this. You understand what I'm saying? This isn't something just a presence can do. It doesn't think. It doesn't make uh, choices or decisions the way a person does. There's good evidence, I believe, in the New Testament to believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I would argue there's also good evidence to believe in the uh, divine person of the Holy Spirit. But we will come to that in just a minute. I want to just take a few minutes to speak to you from my personal observation. Um, I had the opportunity to grow up in the Adventist church in the... Oh, I'm going to date myself here, I guess. But um, in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s, the Adventist church was going through in, in North America a fairly turbulent period of time. We don't have time. I teach Adventist history at Southern Adventist University. I, 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 I'd love to just diverge into all the different factors that brought... Um, there were some real problems in the 70s and 80s. Um, theologically, ethically, financially. There were some things that really disgruntled a lot of people in Adventism. We lost a lot of members, a lot of pastors, um, over some of the controversies. And um, it, was, it was a time when independent ministries uh, gained a, a large influence in Adventism. I grew up in this era. I grew up being very familiar with many of these independent ministries. I'm not going to say on the fringes of Adventism, but maybe on the fringes of Adventism. You know, um, some of the extremes of Adventism. Um, I, I can tell you stories, firsthand stories, from some of these movements because I was there for some of these, you know, pretty seminal events that took place as different organizations challenged the church and as as, as different events took place. And we won't go into all that today, but I will say that that I've had the opportunity to watch a lot of movements rise with what they considered to be a pure understanding of truth than Adventism holds. You understand what I'm saying? I've had the opportunity to watch not just one or two, but probably dozens or more of these movements rising. And I've, I've had the opportunity of watching in, in hindsight now and learning from some of the things that have transpired. And I want to share with you the, the spiral that these movements um, tend to take. First, there comes the discovery of something unique, distinctive, and, and the teaching of that unique, distinctive idea to others. Now, of course, right now we're talking about in the context of the anti-Trinitarian movement. Okay, and so, uh, but there, it doesn't have to be about the Trinity. It could be about feast days. It could be about some prophetic interpretation. It could be about the twenty-five twenty. It could be about a reinterpretation of time prophecies in the future. It could have been. It could be about anything that you want to talk about that is that is discovered. Often, it's not really a new truth. It's something that's been around for a long time, and like I say, it goes in about twenty-year cycles or so, generational cycles, and it comes back up. But they discover this, this unique, distinctive teaching, and they begin teaching others. There's always some truth in it, by the way. Um, as Ellen White says, the, tr the vine of error cannot stand alone, but must wrap itself around the tree of truth. 
So there's always truth to be found in their teachings. But often it's, it's what they disallow, not what they allow. Or it's, it's, it's the em- emphasis they, even that they place on it. Or it's uh, some un- un- unique or maybe nuanced interpretation. So this is what happens. As they begin teaching this, they, they have a growing belief in its importance. It's really all they can talk about. It becomes their gospel. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about any specific group of people. I'm talking about in general. This happens. I've watched it over and over and over again. This becomes the main idea of what they are about. This is a, almost a sole focus, if not a sole focus. Now, if there is evidence against it in the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, they find conspiratorial means of denying that evidence. And I'll be honest with you, friends. I've seen very few people come to this point and come back. It is very difficult. Once any objective evidence you can present to a person is a part of a conspiracy, it is very difficult to reason with them at all. Try talking to someone who really believes the earth is flat. If if you haven't done that, I don't know if I'd suggest it or not, but um, you feel very helpless because any evidence you present is a part of the great conspiracy. It doesn't fit their worldview, literally, and so they are not going to accept it because it's a part of the conspiracy. Um, They view it as testing truth, defining true believers. In other words, if you don't believe our message, you're going to be lost, and in the words of the current Anatrinitarian movement in Adventism, they are saying, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If you don't agree with our view of the Trinity, you will be lost. Okay? That's, that's where we... They're not the first. They begin to see it as the... Uh, loud cry, for example, or the, 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 the fourth angel, or they'll see this huge importance about their nuanced understanding of the Godhead or of whatever the matter is. They decide the church is apostate because it's a rejection of it. And they will begin telling you, you shouldn't support the church, you shouldn't go to the church, you, shouldn't be, you, you should be withdrawing from the Adventist church because they do not teach the truth about this area, and this is the message for this time in earth's history. And finally, I've watched as over and over, they are separated not only from the body of Christ, God's remnant church, they become separated from basically all other believers. And I've watched a lot of people spiritually dead, spiritually isolated, unhappy, but not able to go back to basically any group of people because they don't agree with what I believe is the most important thing. That's a sad spiral, friends. And I'll just give you an example. We'll, we'll look at an example. And, and, and you've probably heard of this. Maybe you've heard of this. First John chapter 5 and verse 7 tells us, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now that almost sounds like a Trinitarian statement, doesn't it? It almost sounds like a triune God, a Holy Spirit, a Father, and the Son. And uh, I believe it is, in fact. But 
Many years ago, a group of Christians, we know uh, believers, I don't know if they really should be considered Christians, that, but they are friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I say, I don't know if we should consider them Christians only because they deny the eternal divinity of Christ, right? Which is a pretty important part of Christian faith. But at any rate, the Jehovah's Witnesses, our friends of Jehovah's Witnesses, have struggled with this verse. It's not in their Bible, the world translation of the Bible. They've redesigned, of course, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They say the Word was a God, you see. But 1 John 5, 7, it's not even in their Bible. And they say, this is why. They say it's because Erasmus, he didn't include it in his first copy of the received text, the Textus Receptus, that was the basis of the Protestant translation of the New Testament. It was added, they claim, it was added later because of pressure from the papacy because they needed a verse that proved their false doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what do we have there? Well, conspiracy theory, exactly. Now, there's maybe variations of it. Not all of them are going to say the exact same thing. You may have heard, if you've run into an Adventist, an anti-Trinitarian, you've heard the exact same Jehovah's Witness line. Exactly the same. Now, it's possible that that happened, right? But there's also a reason to believe, there's good evidence to believe, that, that Erasmus, as he continued studying, he came upon, upon further evidence that that text should be included. It's true that it's not in all the manuscripts. But I wanted to share with you, and this is, a, this is an example of, of a conspiracy theory that can be resolved. First um, John 5, verse 7 is referenced, and I'm not going to read all this. In 200 A.D. by Tertullian, in 250 A.D. by Cyprian of Carthage, it's quoted. In 350 A.D. by Priscillian, um, by the way, these are all before Erasmus, aren't they? Quite a ways before Erasmus. 350 A.D. by Audacious Clarus. Um, in 350 A.D. by Athanasius, um, in 398 A.D. by Aurelius Augustine, in 415 A.D. by the Council of Carthage, in 450, between 450 and 530, by three different Orthodox African writers who are quoting the verse while defending Godhead against the Vandals, in 500 A.D. by Cassidorus, um, and in the Waldensian Bible, which Ellen White says they had early come upon an accurate translation of the Scripture, guess what? 1 John 5, 7 is there. Now, I'm not saying that any one of those should tell us that that verse belongs there, but there's a lot of good evidence when you look at the whole picture, isn't there, for 1 John 5, 7 to actually have been in the original text. Because we're talking about in the 3rd century, very, very early, the 200, that's very, very early. In the, in the promulgation of manuscripts and so forth. And so there's good reason for uh, Erasmus to have said, no, that verse belongs in the Bible. And there's good reason for me to believe that I should trust it as being biblical. I think there's a, a, a good reason for it to be there. But in, in, in today's anti-Trinitarian mindset, the same type of conspiracies arise. And this is what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you that Ellen White... <laughs> Ellen White did not write the book Evangelism. It is a compilation by Leroy Froom, and he was a Jesuit. Now, um, uh, pardon me, but she did write the book Evangelism. She didn't compile it. it was, it's true, it was compiled from her writings into a book, but everything there she wrote. And in fact, of the primary statements on the Trinity, uh, the Godhead is the word she would use, 
tri, uh, heavenly trio, uh, and on the Holy Spirit, the primary statements we can use to see what she wrote, what she s believed, were written, we still have it in her own handwriting or on manuscripts. She edited and said on the top of the page, I approve, I edited and approved this page. Um, it's not something very easily to believe that some editor of the review or of, the, of her writings actually inserted it. Um, but that's the conspiratorial mentality. Listen to what she says, Evangelism, page 617. The Holy Spirit has a personality, else he could not bear witness to our spirits and with our spirits that we are the children of God. He must also be a divine person, else he could not search out the secrets which lie hidden in the mind of God. For what no man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Um, continuing on, Ellen White, Manuscript 66, 1899, we have been brought together as a school, and we need to re realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds, that the Lord God is our keeper and helper. He hears every word we utter and knows every thought of the mind. The, again, from the book of Evangelism, page 615, the comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal savior. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. If you want to read more about the early Adventist understanding of the Godhead and, and maybe some of the writings of Ellen White and her statements on it, I recommend two papers. One, a, a quest, uh, a, it's by Moon, Dr. Moon, The Quest for a Biblical Trinity, and that's in the Adventist uh, Theological Society's uh, archives. Ellen White and the Personhood of the Holy Spirit, a ministry magazine article. Um, uh, that is also archived from 2012. Very powerful resources that if you wanted to study this further, you could learn more about. Now, I want to point you, however, to a page from the Adventist Re Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, October 9, 1913. Now, what's interesting about this page, and you won't be able to read it from where you're at because I can't read it from where I'm at very well, um, but uh, uh, this column here, um, on this, on this uh, left column, this is actually the end of a column that was written for this edition of the review by Mrs. E.G. White. Okay, Now, she's alive in 1913, very much alive. And um, there's, there's right immediately following it is called The Message for Today. And it's written by the editor of the review, a man by the name of F.M. Wilcox. Now, F.M. Wilcox was the editor of the review from 1911 to 1944. I believe it was. And um, he was one of the five individuals personally selected by Ellen White to be the original trustees of her estate. They decided what would happen with her writings and how the compilations would be accomplished and so forth and so on after she died. So F.M. Wilcox, the editor of the review, was a trusted person by the prophetess. And her, his article begins right here. It's called The Message for Today. And right here it says, we shall state that Seventh-day Adventists believe, and um, let's see, I can do this from here. Seventh-day Adventists believe, and this is what he says, in the divine trinity. This trinity consists of the eternal Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of 
the Godhead. Now, I, want, I, I point this out simply because this is a long time before Leroy Froome. This is the first time that in, publish, in, in print, Adventists affirm a belief in the Trinity. And that's because our early Adventist pioneers did not believe in the Trinity, not the Trinity that we believe in. They, made, they, they rejected some of the ideas of the Godhead that the medieval church had woven in because of their Greek understanding of dualism. Um, basically, they rejected the idea of modalism, that there's one God, one person with three manifestations. And if you read, read the articles that I referenced earlier, there's no question in our minds that the Adventist pioneers did not believe the Trinity as it was taught by the, by the middle century Christian church. No question about that. But there's also no question that as they, and especially as you read Ellen White's writings, the Adventist church came to an understanding that didn't accept those Greek-type ideas about the, uh, about the Godhead, but still retained a triune God. And here you have, two years before Ellen White's death, on, an, on a page that she quite certainly read, an, ad, an Adventist um, who she trusted using the word Trinity to describe an Adventist biblical understanding of a Godhead of three distinct persons. And I think it's good, compelling evidence as we, as we look at the evidence out there. It's good evidence to say that Ellen White's writings have not been added to or distorted to somehow say something that she didn't intend. As I recall, she was quite well capable of defending her writings when she was alive. And I believe God is capable of defending them after her passing. So this morning... I present to you the importance of the third person of the Godhead. A Holy Spirit that without His work in our lives, I personally cannot be saved. And we corporately can't finish the work. I think we ought to be praying for the Holy Spirit. On a personal level and on a corporate level. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Our church needs the Holy Spirit today. Amen. And I want to invite you to pray with me for that now. Father in heaven, we pray that today your spirit would work in our hearts. We've looked at what it can do. And too, too often, Father, we've not allowed it to do its job. We want to pray the Holy Spirit might not be grieved by our by our um, lack of concern or apathy. But we want to pray that henceforth we might more earnestly plead for His work to be manifested within us. We pray for our church here and around the world that the Holy Spirit might be able to do a work of revival and reformation. May it begin in our hearts. May we experience the early rain. And may you come quickly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.